Welcome to another inspiring message from Pastor John Cameron, lead pastor of Arise Church in New Zealand. We know this message will empower and inspire you. In 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 1. If you're taking notes, you can entitle today's message, Misbelief. Misbelief. Father, bless your word, we pray. Move upon the service. Illuminate your word. Speak truth into our hearts. Change us. Uh, in every home, every lounge room, every place where people are watching this, in this room, in Carpety, we give these next few minutes to you, and we pray that a great spirit of revelation would give life to your word and breathe it into our hearts. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. One day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan didn't tell his father what he was doing. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migrant. That sounds like migraine. Jump down to verse 4. It says, No one realized that Jonathan had left the Philistine camp. To reach the, the Israelite camp, to reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Shena. The cliff on the north was in front of Mishmash, and the one on the south was in front of Gibeah. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, his armor bearer replied. I am with you completely, whatever you decide. That's awesome, isn't it? All right, then Jonathan told him, we'll go across and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, no, then we won't go up and not, take, not go up to them. Uh, if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll go up. That will be... <laughs> The Lord's sign. Talk about iffy guidance, right? <laughs> that will be the Lord's sign that He will help us and defeat them. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, Look, the, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, Come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, climb up with me, Jonathan said to his armor, for the, armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men and all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. Suddenly panic broke out in the Philistine camp, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. Saul's outlooks in Gibeah of Benjamin, Benjamin saw a strange sight. The vast army of Philistines began to melt away in every direction. Call the roll and find out who is missing, Saul ordered. And when they checked, they found that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Then Saul shouted to Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod in front of the Israelites. But while Saul was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine cramp just kept getting louder and louder. So finally, Saul said to the priest, well, stuff it. Never mind. Let's just get going. 
Then Saul and his men rushed over and found the Philistines killing each other. There was great confusion everywhere. Even the Hebrews who had gone over to the Philistines revolted and joined with Saul, Jonathan, and the rest of the Israelites. Verse 24. Now the men of Israel were pressed to exhaustion that day because Saul had placed them under an oath saying, let a curse fall on anyone who eats before evening before I have full revenge on my enemies. No one ate anything all day, even though they had all found honeycomb on the ground, quick form of uh, glucose, on the ground, they wouldn't touch it, even though they found it, because they all feared the oath that had been taken. But Jonathan didn't hear the, his father's command, and he dipped the edge of his stick into the piece of honeycomb, and he ate the honey. And after he ate it, he felt refreshed. But one of the men said to him, Oh, your father made the army take a strict oath that no one who eats the food uh, today, anyone who eats the food will be cursed. That is why everyone is weary and faint. My father has made trouble for us all, Jonathan exclaimed. A command like that only hurts us. See how refreshed I am now that I've eaten this little bit of honey? If the men had all been allowed to freely eat of the food that they found among our enemies... Think how many more Philistines we would have killed. Uh, about three weeks and three days ago, on a Thursday morning, I was riding to the office on my bicycle. I'm a Lycra guy, you know. It's an honesty suit, you know. Everything that is hidden will be revealed. I'm just getting an advance on that, you know. I was riding my bicycle to the church office in Wellington, and it's a 27-kilometer ride, and, and I was going down the street when I was hit by a car. The car turned right. I just received the photos this morning when I woke up, uh, taken from a, a, a traffic camera on the front of a truck that was right there and captured it in, in freeze frame as this car just radically turns right out of the blue and I went straight into the side of a car. I was knocked out for two minutes, fractured my skull. I have a concussion, a fractured rib, a frozen shoulder with a long name that is progressively getting better but has no strength in it right now, a, a sprained left thumb, 10 days off work, found myself about seven hours later kind of finally coming to in hospital. I'd been awake, but I couldn't remember anything. And suddenly about 1.30 in the afternoon, my first memories began. And I've been getting better ever since. And, and it's interesting what people's reactions are when something like that happens to you. Firstly, I just want to say I'm just incredibly grateful for the massive outpouring of love and of prayer and of support that Jillian and I have felt. And just it's great to know how much people love you and not have to die before you discover it. It's just great. I feel like I really had a massive, you know, blessing. It's been great. Um, and then people begin to tell you things and they write notes and cards and some of the things people say are quite strange. One of the most common things people have put in cards or in text messages or tweeted online is, is a phrase, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. What's wrong with that? It's like suddenly Kelly Clarkson has become an oracle of wisdom for a modern generation. What a stupid thing to say to someone 
in a hospital bed who is recovering from an accident. Hey, it didn't kill you. Gonna make you stronger. You're an idiot. It's made me weaker. It's only been in the last six days that I can do that. That is progress. It didn't make me stronger. It made me weaker, you moron. Then there are those one or two people who come along and they say, well, you know, I guess the Lord knows what He's doing. I guess the Lord knows what He's doing. And behind that is an incredibly fatalistic view that many people in our world hold, that somehow God was involved in the accident. You know, in His omniscience, He knew about the accident and allowed it to take place because somehow it's woven into God's will for my life. I, I wanna say something, it might shock somebody, but I want you to know the accident wasn't God's will for my life. We live in a world where God's will is not done all of the time. Jesus urged us to pray that it actually would be done. But whenever you find a child without a meal, whenever you find abuse in a home, Whenever you find a life bound by some kind of suffering, whenever you see injustice, cruelty, whenever you see somebody doing something maliciously, you've got to know that we live in a world where God's will is not done all of the time. And to think otherwise, to think that somehow God was involved, God is tolerant of it, God is permissive of our suffering, neglect, and He is somehow just overseeing it, going, yes, they're getting what they deserve, is a misbelief about God. It is not true. And I guess one of the, yeah, one of the greatest challenges for us is that we're all prone to misbelief. A misbelief is something that you believe, yet what you believe is wrong or false, yet you believe it. And the crazy thing is, team, you don't have to look too far to find somebody that's got a misbelief about the God that we worship. I mean, expressed in that notion, just that notion. I'm not saying they're evil people. I'm just saying that if they think that the accident was God's will, that's a misbelief. And in our lives, in our Christian experience, misbeliefs are everywhere. I mean, you might meet a person who is like repetitively asking God for forgiveness for the same sin. I mean, if you walk up to me and you say, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, and I say to you, that's all right, I forgive you, and you come back to me five minutes later and ask me again, then come back to me an hour later and ask me again, and then I see you next Sunday in the church foyer and you ask me again, and I see you the next week and you ask me again, after one week, two weeks, I'm gonna be running every time I see you because if I told you that I forgive you, I've forgiven you, I'm over it, now you get over it. And many Christians are repetitively asking God to forgive them of the same thing over and over again. Why? Because they do not believe that He forgave them the first time. It's gotta be true, doesn't it? Otherwise we wouldn't keep asking the same thing. You can find a person who you know, looks at a flood or an earthquake or another natural disaster and says, well, that's God's judgment. That, that's God's judging those people. And I'm here in Christchurch where there was a devastating earthquake and I want you to know with absolute certainty it wasn't God's judgment and it wasn't God's will. Even Jesus said, when a tower fell over and it killed those people, do you think they were any greater sinners than the people who missed it when the tower fell down? It's not God's will. It's not, it's not right or wrong 
To think otherwise is a misbelief. Is this not true? Yet yet we find people who think that way all over the place. Sometimes it's trivial. I've met many Christians who uh, will buy something, do something that's going to bless them, maybe bless their family, maybe take them on a holiday, maybe buy an expensive treat that's just, you know, not necessary for their family, but just something that's going to be nice. You know, buy a boat, do something that's joyful for you, but you've never had it in your life before. And people get very concerned that somehow God is not pleased with them because of their, because of their willingness to do something that's just a little bit out of the necessary box. I've met pastors. In fact, I need to lie. I mean, to tell the truth. I've been a pastor who's tried to take a holiday and felt guilty that somehow, you know, you're walking away from the move of God. Like somehow you are the center of it. You are in control of it. Like it was you and your awesomeness that caused it all to take place. And the truth is, whenever that feeling of guilt arises within me, it's, it's a misbelief. But then don't judge me. How about every mom who goes on a date with her husband and feels guilty that she's not being a good mom because she left her kids at home? That's a misbelief. Think about, think about those Christians who would really like to give all they have to Jesus. They desperately want to open up their lives totally and completely and say, God, you can have my life. But beneath the surface is this huge fear that if they do that, God's gonna send them to some cannibalistic tribe in a forgotten corner of the universe. And they are going to become a modern day Livingston and get eaten for dinner by somebody. Not realizing that God is only going to give you the desire to do His will. And if you don't desire it, it's never going to be His will. It's a misbelief, right? Yeah, come on. How about the business person who's in business but, and they'd really like to let God into their business, pray over their work, trust God with their investments. But is this massive fear that if they were to give their business to God, God is going to say, give all of your money away. And really, they're going to end up broken poor because God required them to give so much that their business is now in suffering. Friends, that's a misbelief about God. God wants you to be blessed, remain blessed, so that you can be a blessing. But I would be, I would be incorrect if I didn't say I've seen Christian business people and thought, they don't want to lift their hands in worship. They don't want to open their heart fully to my word. The message I'm preaching, I'm talking about, because of a fear that God's going to get them and everything they've worked for is going to be gone. Misbeliefs are just pervasive in our Christian faith, a wrong or a false belief. In fact, if you wanted to say it truthfully, I think you could say that our battle is against misbeliefs. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities. It's against powers. It says we take authority over every stronghold, every, every argument, every pretension. We take every thought captive. Because at the end of the day, we're all thinking. You're all thinking. And if we're not careful, that thought just starts to become 
in our minds a pretension, which is like an assumption. It's something you live with without testing. That, that, that unarrested pretension grows and becomes an argument. That's something that you will, you will fight to defend, something that forms your worldview. And when you meet somebody who has a different one, you feel very challenged and upset about the way that they live. And that, that, if it's not torn down, becomes a stronghold, an impenetrable fortress that exists within here. And the reality is, team, is that what the Bible's saying is if you're not careful, you start believing stuff that ain't true. Yeah, yeah. And if that doesn't get dealt with, then you and I end up living a life that is different to the life that God has for us. Um, my, my son, Will, has just been having the most awesome kind of personal awakening. It's been so cool to watch it take place. And uh, him and I were, were praying as we were, were going to bed. And, uh, you know, we have these spiritual themes in our house each week. So a couple of weeks ago, it was, it was Thanksgiving. And so the kids have got to thank God for three things, you know, that week. And the next week, it's faith, which is awesome. Because every night, my son plays for an ex praise for an Xbox 360. And my daughter plays for praise for a puppy every single night. <laughs> it's just so awesome. Because my wife does not want the second prayer to be granted. And so it's like the rest of us are getting t-shirts going, puppy, puppy. But, but my son, my son uh, this week was just awesome because he comes up to me and he goes, Dad, Dad, um, I've decided God's real. And I'm like, oh, that, that's good. You know, like, I'm kind of glad about that, you know. And he goes, yeah, because... Uh, I prayed for something, and it happened. And if God answers my prayers, then I've, I've decided He must be real. And I think, you know what? When I, when I have in that conversation, half of me was loving it. The half of, other half of me wanted to shut it down because in my heart I'm thinking, how can my kid ever doubt that God is real? Yet I'm so grateful that he's going on his own spiritual journey because here's the deal is that we in life intentionally form our beliefs. We accidentally form our misbeliefs. It's not normally the other way around, is it? You, you have to actually, actively decide. You know what? God is good. He is for me. Yep, I believe God can heal. I believe that God is great. I believe that through God, I can overcome. We've been, we've been singing a song this morning that I feel is literally part of a, a sound God is bringing over a rise at the moment. And the song says, by your spirit, I will rise. I will rise. I'm, I'm getting better. I'm healed. I can overcome. That's what it's saying. Because you actively form beliefs and you passively end yourself in a place where you have a misbelief. Misbelief has been in the world from the time of Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, the Bible says Adam and Eve chose to sin, and then God turns up and He says to Adam and Eve, where are you? And Adam comes out, you know, and he's like, well, you know, the truth is I'm here. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself away. And God's answer to Adam was to say, hang on a minute, who told you you were naked? Where did that mistaken belief, 
Where did that way of seeing yourself, where did that fear come from? Where did that apprehension surface from? What made you fearful? What made you ashamed? He's saying, Adam, this is not a right way of thinking and seeing and acting. You have a misbelief. And friends, I believe that there needs to be moments. And I believe God wants to bring us this Sunday, next Sunday, as a church, through moments where maybe a misbelief in our lives just gets surfaced. We can see it for what it is, because this is what I do know. When I read this passage of Scripture, and I see Saul, and I see David, what's, what's the difference between the two? The answer is the way that they see God. I mean, when you look at Saul and you look at David, you've just got a picture of two people who are serving a different God, yet the same God. We got the difference between a right belief and a misbelief. When we see Saul in our passage of Scripture, we got a guy who's doing nothing. He's worried uh, that, you know, that he, he isn't doing the right thing. He is apprehensive. He is paralyzed. He is fearful. He's double-guessing his guidance. Even when God is obviously moving, he is still questioning it. On the other hand, we've got Jonathan, who's just, you know, he's just willing to take risks. He's adventurous. He has great confidence in God. He uses trial and error to figure out whether it was God moving or not. You know what I'm saying? He's like, hey, let's just try it if it works and God is for us. If we fail, then God wasn't in it. But let's, let's not just sit here and do nothing. We've got Saul who institutes a fast. He's relying on some kind of extreme form of spiritual discipline. And we've got Jonathan, who's feasting, who's living in a state I'm calling spiritual celebration. Confident that God is with him, willing to step out. Check out these two central verses in this passage. The first one is verse 6. Jonathan, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win the battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Verse 18 and 19, Saul shouted to Ahijah, bring the ephod here. For at that time, Ahijah was wearing the ephod. But while priest was talking to the priest, the confusion in the Philistine camp grew louder and louder. So Saul said to the priest, never mind, let's just get going. We've got this amazing contrast between two people, and it's just a difference of how they saw God. And friends, I believe that God is looking for you and I to make sure that we are not living our lives paralyzed, fearful, doubting, filled with shame, worry, anxious. God is wanting you and I to not live the life that Saul was living, buried in a tent, paralyzed, uncertain, questioning, unable to make a decision, thinking that the sky was going to fall down at every moment that he did something that wasn't absolutely safe. And then God wants us to live a life like Jonathan, to say, hey, you know, I'm just walking through life. God is with me. I'm not saying you need to be an entrepreneur, but I do believe that God wants to free you from the fear that your footsteps will fall. He wants to, he wants to get you and I to a point where we are certain at, at least about who He is and confident that He's going to move in our 
lives. Jonathan, through revelation, lived bold and courageous and big. And Saul, through misbelief and religion, lived small, fearful, and doubting. Jonathan believed that God was for him. And Saul was not confident of that at all. And friends, I believe that God wants to correct our misbeliefs. In fact, you know, I think the easiest way that we can see our misbeliefs is in our reactions. Listen, we all have them. We all have them. They've been in the world since Adam. And whether you're new to this Christian faith or immersed in it since you were a baby in a womb, I want you to know that I don't believe any of us have got this thing locked down. As long as God is God, He will be revealing more of Himself to us. And every time He reveals more of Himself to us, more truth occupies our heart and more lies therefore leave, right? It's not good or bad. It's just the journey of life. You know, what's amazing is that it's really in our responses and our reactions that we often spot our misbeliefs, how we see problems, how we respond to challenge, what we do with opportunity, how we handle money and wealth. All of these things show to us whether we're full of belief or full of misbelief. The crazy truth about both Jonathan and Saul is that they both worshiped technically the same God. Yet when you look at their lives, they couldn't be more paradoxically different. And when you look at Christians, you are going to find Saul's and you're going to find Jonathan's. Is this not true? And friends, I believe that religion does have a way of clouding us in doubt and fear and uncertainty, but God wants to deal with our misbeliefs. He wants to free our hearts, whether you're in Carpety, whether you're sitting in a home in New Zealand, whether you're listening from another nation of the earth or in this building in Christchurch, I want you to know that our God can free us from all our doubt, all our fear and occupy our hearts with true belief. Let's see here, let me give you signs of misbelief. I'm gonna give you seven and then next week we're gonna talk about how we can form right belief. But let me give you seven signs. I'm not gonna just gonna preach them negative. We're gonna hopefully get through them and make it positive. But the first sign of misbelief is a fear of judgment. If you're gonna find a most common thread to a Christian's misbelief, it is the fear that what's happening to them in their lives is God's judgment. Or a fear that what happened to their parents, what happened to their grandparents, is now going to happen to them. That somehow we believe that we are a fatalistic participant in things that have already been decided and that judgment or condemnation or failure is our guaranteed lot in life. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 talks about Jesus and it says He became a curse for us when He was hung upon the tree. Because Jesus became the curse, there is no curse hanging over me and there is no curse hanging over you. There is no judgment, no pronouncement of failure, no disease that is automatically your lot, no divorce that's gonna happen because it's happened in your family. No anger problem that manifests in its Father that is guaranteed to manifest in you. There is no judgment hanging over any believer's life. 
Come on, I reckon we need a great shout of victory that can free us from our misbelief. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. There is no fear of judgment hanging over us. No fear of judgment. The next time in your life you go, ah, I, I, I really messed up. And now this is happening. And that's because God's judging me. You need to know that's wrong. I'm not saying life doesn't have consequences from actions. But I want you to know the moment you ask God's forgiveness and help with whatever consequence your actions have brought you, God that moment flipped. He is now only fully and completely committed to helping you. Even if you were stupid, He's still committed to helping you. He is not against you. He is not judging you. He is with you. He is for you in every moment of your life. I reckon one more time, somebody needs to put their hands together and praise that kind of God. Amen. Misbelief. The second common misbelief I find is an apprehension to take God-honoring risks. I say God-honoring because there are some risks that you should be apprehensive about, like when your friends say jump off a building, you know. But when you, when you have an opportunity that poses risk, that confronts you in life, and you are paralyzed like Saul was paralyzed, then friends, I want you to know it is the presence of a misbelief that fills our hearts with fear and doubt and uncertainty and stops us from stepping out into what God has. You know, when I was starting off in ministry, I had the privilege of driving around several great men of God, you know, driving them around and looking after them and carrying their bags, learned some of my greatest lessons through doing that. And I remember one time this great worldwide leader happened to find his way into the car that I was driving. And I stole that moment. I, 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 I took that moment. I said, what advice would you give to me? I'll never forget it because he paused. He looked at me, he looked back at the road. And he said, yep, I've got one thing. Follow every idea you get and don't you worry about whether it's God or not. Why would you say that? Because fear that it's the right thing is probably the most common way that believers stop doing what God wants them to do. Get rid of your apprehension. Rid your life of your fear. Look, if it doesn't work out, learn from it. Do better. But look at Jonathan. He's like, hey, let's just see if God does this or not. Jonathan, your life's at stake. Hello. There's a whole army, you and your armor bearer, but we don't see the record of Scripture chastising him for his risk taking. God is not against you in taking God honoring risks. He is for you, involved in you stepping out of the boat. And look, if you fall into the water, he'll grab you and lift you back up again. That's the God that we worship. Come on. I've got two minutes, so let me throw a couple out because I want to get to the last one. Cowardice of spirit. 
cowardice of spirit, if we are afraid of life, afraid of obstacles, fearful that life is going to reign over us, rule over us, it is a misbelief. Number four, insecurity or, insecurity or inferiority. Don't say them together. You know, in, in Genesis 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Where did you get that inferior? Where did you get that insecure picture of who you are? But look, Adam is not alone. How about Moses? I'm a stutterer. I'm a nobody. How about, how about Gideon? I'm the least in all of my tribe. Then we've got him two pages later in the Bible admitting that his family are so good looking that they look like royalty. It's just a misbelief. Fruitlessness is the result of a misbelief. Matthew chapter 25, we've got, the guy, we've got the parable of the talents and the guy with the one talent digs it out of the ground, comes back to the master and he says, you know, master says, wait, hey, what'd you do? And he says, oh, well, this is what I knew. I knew that you were hard. I knew that you harvest where you have not sown and that you gather from those who scatter seeds. So I was, what? Afraid. There's our word again. I had a misbelief, so I did absolutely nothing with my life. Fruitlessness is a sign of a misbelief. That your day is done, that your neighbors don't want to hear the gospel, that your life cannot have a testimony, that your dreams are over, that God can't use you that you're a stutterer, that you're, you know, from the, the broken, dysfunctional family. I'm just quoting biblical examples right now. But friends, these are misbeliefs. If God puts His hand upon your life, it is to bear fruit. And it is to His glory that we bear fruit. So let's give God more glory by taking some risks and producing some fruit. Come on, if you believe it, say amen. I'm out of time. I'm out of time. Two more, and, I'm just, and then we're going to wrap it up. Number six, a lack of conviction. The problem with a misbelief is that it forms the foundation of your life. So when you try to build on it, you can't because it will always bring it back down. It will lack conviction. Faith is the conviction of anything. The depth to which you believe is the height to which you can go. I want you to know that some of my greatest struggles in decision making is this, getting to a point where I wholly, totally, and completely believe that this is the right thing to do. The moment that's decided is done. Conviction, conviction is the bedrock of the life of faith. And God wants you and I to not have a misbelief Can you do it? Is this God's will? An unwillingness to say, I can't, yes, will often come because of a misbelief. God wants us to form foundations, convictions. And the last one is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness. Man, what a paralysis that deal is, hey? You know, it's amazing in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19, that we've got Adam and God, and the Bible says God brought to him every kind of animal. And then God said to Adam, what are you going to call it? 
and then it's on your screen, hopefully, that Adam named the animals, and whatever Adam named them, God said, yeah, all right, that's what it's going to be called from now on. Adam, you can choose. Adam, you can decide. Do you know probably the most prevalent misbelief is the thought that there is, with God, a right decision and a wrong decision to nearly everything. That's wrong. If it's not moral, most often, God doesn't care. He wants you to make a decision, and the moment you make a decision, it's like, all right, now you've decided, let's get on with it. Friends, double-mindedness sometimes. I'm not talking about slow to make a big decision. Don't be hasty walking out of this message today. You know, go, right, I'm going to sell my house and move to the country. You know, like, I'm not saying, you know, they're just going to live at the beach. I'm not, I'm not saying you should just be a moron and lose your mind when you walk out of here. But friends, think about how many times we were presented with decisions and we're just like, I, 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 I don't know what God wants. God wants you to just shut up and make a decision. He just doesn't care enough to overtake this. If you choose, then God's gonna bless it. And friends, I believe that God is looking for you and I to make some decisions. He's looking to free us from our misbeliefs. I was in a, 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 a hotel room in San Diego, California last August, and I had an amazing night where God just downloaded some things into my heart and something that had just sat there in my subconscious and filled me with all kinds of just negative stuff. God just highlighted it to me through His Word, and I began to see that I had a a misbelief about God. And I believe that right now, whether you're here in Carpety or online, God has the power to free us of our misbeliefs. That He can change us, that He can free us. If we seek Him, then He will be found by us. So right now, why don't we just close our eyes. I'm gonna pray a prayer and then we're gonna release Carpety. But in every place where you are, close your eyes. Would you open your heart to God? Father, I pray right now that you would come to us, that you would help us to understand you more deeply. This is the central pursuit of our lives, to know you. And I pray that every misbelief that has sat in our lives and hurt us and hurt our relationships and hindered our lives would be gone. You want us to be Jonathans and not Saul's. You want us to be strong and not weak, valiant and not cowardice. You want us to know that you are for us and you are not against us. So I pray right now that as we seek you, you would deliver us from all of our fears. Touch every person. We declare that by your Spirit, we are coming alive. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Pastor John Cameron. If you would like to find out more about Arise Church, check out arisechurch.com or find us on YouTube.